Welcome to First Baptist Church. You're listening to the teaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. So Romans chapter 3, we'll begin reading in verse 19. And the word of the Lord reads this way. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped. And the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified By his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness. Because in, in his divine forbearance he has passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time. So that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Martin Luther once wrote, Night and day I pondered until I saw the connection between the justice of God and the statement that the just shall live by faith. Then I grasped that justice of God is the righteousness by which through grace and sheer mercy God justifies us through faith. Thereupon I felt myself reborn and have gone through open doors into paradise. Well, I want to welcome you back this morning to the third part of our series titled Sola. Um, it is subtitled The Heart of the Reformation. And as we talked about this series, the reason why we are even talking about this is October 31st represents the 500th anniversary of an event that changed the entire world. You see, 500 years ago, Martin Luther, an Augustinian monk in Germany, had some very deep theological concerns He actually had some very deep theological questions about the nature of salvation because he saw a conflict between what the Bible teaches and what the church at the time was teaching about salvation. And because he wanted to, because of that, he wanted to start a conversation and talk about it. Right? And so what he did was he wrote his concerns down uh, called 95 Theses and he nailed them to the church door at the University of Wittenberg where he was a professor of theology. And he posted them on the door so that others would talk about the issue and hopefully he could have a debate and, and talk about the issue of salvation. Because really, that's the greatest question that we can ask. Right? The greatest question that we all face is what can I do to be saved? That's the most important issue in all of our lives. What must I do to be saved? How can I be made right in the eyes of God? Right? And let me just tell you, if you don't get this question right, if you don't get the answer to this question right, nothing else matters. Right? It doesn't matter how successful you are. It doesn't matter how well-liked you are. It doesn't matter how happy you are. Right? If you do not find the way to be saved from your sins, ultimately... Your life is pointless. And so the greatest question facing all of mankind is what can I do to be saved? And this was the question that Martin Luther was wrestling with. 
It was a question that he wanted uh, that he wanted to talk about because he believed that there was some inconsistency in what the Bible was saying and what the church was saying about the question. And as we talked about, he then nailed that document to the door. When he did that, he was not trying to be rebellious toward the church. He was not trying to be controversial, right? And he certainly wasn't trying to start a reformation. All he was trying to do was engage in a conversation, in a debate on the inconsistency he saw between the word of God and the church's teaching on justification. And he was doing it to try to create a dialogue. That was it. To create an opportunity to explore the truth. But little did Martin Luther know that his 95 theses would not only cause the Catholic Church to pronounce him as a heretic, it actually created an unstoppable movement that changed the entire world. It changed the entire course of human history. And not only did it change the church, and not only did it change the practice of faith, it changed politics, it changed the government, it changed economies, it changed educational systems, it changed social structures and institutions, it changed every nation of the world. The entire world from top to bottom was impacted and changed by this one event. In fact, as we said last week, of the 2.2 billion people who claim to be Christians in the world today, the vast majority of them are either Catholic or Protestant. And what I mean by Protestant I'm talking about Christians that have a historical and theological connection to go all the way back to this event and the resulting Protestant Reformation of the church, like all of us, right? This was an event that changed the entire world. In fact, we are in this room right now because of what happened on October 31st, 1517. I'm preaching to you and read from the Bible in English instead of Latin because of what happened 500 years ago. Right? We live in a country, I don't know if you realize this, but we live in a country right now that still protects a person's right to freedom of religion. That idea is a direct result of Martin Luther's you know, standing up to the church. Right? It changed our entire world. And not only that, it also changes how we look at the world. October 31st is a day that changed everything. And in, in the first week of this series, we, we talked a lot about that. We laid a lot of the historical foundations. And if you missed that, then I encourage you to go back to SoundCloud and listen to that. But uh, we talked about the fact that this, this event led to a time period that is known as the Protestant Reformation. A period of time that lasted between the 16th and 17th century where people uh, stood up to the church and they stood against the traditions of the church to reclaim and bring to light the true gospel of Jesus Christ, which Martin Luther believed was so clearly expressed in the book of Romans, uh, chapter number one, verses 16 and 17, where Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith, for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. You see, over a period of about a thousand years, salvation or justification became not simply about faith, but it, instead it became about what the church had to say. It became about church traditions and church rules, and it became about what the leadership of the church called the magisterium had to say. But Martin Luther saw a conflict, and he, and he read the scriptures 
And what he saw, the words of Paul, who, is that, it, that the Bible clearly says the righteous shall live by faith, but, but according to the Catholic Church, the righteous live by faith and confession and penance and communion and buying indulgences and paying to see relics and all these other rites and rituals. Salvation was not just about your faith. It was about your works. Martin Luther saw the conflict between the Bible and he said, you know, he saw the conflict between what the Bible had to say and what the Catholic Church had to say. And out of that conflict emerged the all-important question. Who's right? Who is right? Who is the ultimate authority? Right? Is it the Pope and the Magisterium? Is it church traditions? Or is it the Bible? Who has the final say about faith and about doctrine and what it means to be saved? And Martin Luther and the other reformers that followed him all came to the same understanding and conclusion. And they said that the scriptures, the Bible, right, was the sole final authority of all matters of faith and practice. Sola Scriptura was the Latin phrase that became the slogan of the Reformation that clearly points to the idea that what we need to know about God and what we need to know about being saved is all found in the Bible, the very word of God. Or as Paul calls it, Theonustos, which means the very breath of God. The Bible, not tradition, not the opinions of men. The Bible was reclaimed as a sole source of accurate, infallible, inerrant truth. Sola Scriptura, Scripture alone. Now, this isn't to say that the only source of truth in the world, right, is, is just the Bible. That's not the case. It's not what sola scriptura means. It just simply means that all other sources of truth must submit to the authority of the word of God. And what that means for you is if you know something that contradicts what the word of God says, then what you know is incorrect. It's as simple as that. Sola scriptura. Scripture alone is the final authority in all divine truth. And out of this understanding from the Bible... Out of this understanding that this was the authoritative revelation of God came four other sola statements about salvation. In fact, it goes like this. We are saved by sola gratia or grace alone through sola fide, which is faith alone in solus Christus, which is in Christ alone. And it's all for sola deo gloria, which is for the glory of God alone. You see, the Reformation was all about coming back and returning to the heart of the gospel. We sing the song, I'm coming back to the heart of worship. Well, they were coming back to the heart of the gospel. We appeal to, to scripture alone for our final authority of truth. And that scripture tells us we're not saved by what we do. We're not saved by our own merit. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And that is it. Out of the Reformation came these ideas, these life-changing, world-altering slogans that reflected the original life-saving gospel. Sola Scriptura, Sola Gratia, Sola Fide, Sola Christus, and Sola De Gloria. In, right? And in the first week, we talked about Sola Scriptura. We, we dealt with that. We explored what it means you know, to have the Bible as our final authority. Right? And then we talked about how that was important then, and we talked about how it's important for us today. And the last week we spent some time and we talked about sola gratia, or, or grace alone. 
The fact that we are saved by, by, by not anything within us, but by the grace of God. And we talked about what that meant and how that impacts our lives today. And this week we're going to talk about sola fide, or faith alone. Now before we jump in to talk about this, and, how we talk, and about how we're saved by faith alone, I actually need to tell you a little bit more about Martin Luther's story, because there's a lot here. Because there is more to Martin Luther's story than him just nailing a document to the door. Right? Because, because there's an important question that we have to really kind of come to terms with or, or deal with. And the question is, is, how did he get there? I mean, think about it. How did Martin Luther end up as a, a devout Augustinian monk? How did he end up in a place to change the entire world? How did he end up in a place as a monk, a devout monk, where he would then turn around and challenge a thousand years of, of church tradition? I mean, think about this. This stuff does not happen in a vacuum. Things will just materialize on their own. There's an underlying story. There's an underlying reason. Something had to lead him there. Something had to, to transform him and shape him into a man that was compelled to write down that 95 thesis. And then, then turn around and go public with him by nailing him to the door. Right. And more than that, something had, had, had to happen to him that caused him to continue to stand firm as the church began to come against him and come down hard on him. The church came at him with all its power. The church pronounced him as a heretic, which comes with a, a death sentence. Right? He was, he was hit a death sentence over his head because of his views. And he was urged by many people around him to recant from his ideas of justification. But he refused he stood his ground. In fact, he stood before a church council at the, at the Diet of, of Worms. Now, everybody that reads it says it's the Diet of Worms, which doesn't make any sense at all, right? It's not about what eating worms, okay? A diet is a, a council, and it's pronounced Worms, so let's not get that confused. But um, he stood at this council at the Diet of Worms, and he said, as they were trying to press him into recanting, he says, I cannot... And will not recant anything, for to go against conscience is neither safe, I mean, neither right nor safe. He says, I can do no, I, here I stand, I can do no other. So help me God, amen. What would cause him to say that? What would cause him to be so bold to stand there and stand his ground in spite of such great danger that he was facing? Right. Well, to understand why he would do that, you have to understand kind of a little bit of his story. You have to go back further in, into history. You see, Martin Luther was born into the middle class, a middle class family. And, and this was a historically a, a relatively new phenomena. Right? You actually have to understand a little bit more about history even before then. The reason why there was a middle class at this time period is before that you had, you had, you had like, like a caste system. You had the very, very rich, you know, the aristocrats, and you had the very poor, the serfs, right? Well, then, then you had the Black Plague, which wiped out about a third of the population in Europe. And suddenly, you have a third less people sharing all that wealth, and suddenly there becomes a middle class. There was more to go around. That's, that's, the, that, that's the, um, the, the sad truth about that. But this middle class, Martin Luther was born into this. And because he was born into the middle class, he had an opportunity that, that, that other people didn't have before. He, his parents, because he was a middle class person, was able to send him to the university to receive an education. This was a relatively new phenomena, right? 
And so uh, his dad sent him off to college. In, in fact, in 1501, at the age of 17, Martin Luther entered the University of Erfurt okay, because his father desired for him to become an attorney. His, his father wanted him, like, like we do with our kids, want, want, wants his kids to, to grow up and to be better off. And he thought that that was the way for Martin Luther was to become a lawyer. And in 1505, Martin Luther received his master's degree and then he enrolled in law school. But later that same year, something happened in his life that would change the direction of his life and ultimately the course of history. July 2nd, 1505, Martin Luther was returning to the university on horseback after a trip home. And while he was on his way, he got caught in a thunderstorm with no shelter nearby. And the thunderstorm, um, during this storm, a lightning bolt struck so close to him that it knocked him off his horse to the ground. And Martin Luther believed that in that moment he was about to die. And he was terrified of death. Because he was terrified of God's divine judgment. Because he knew that if he died, he was going to go to hell. Because he knew that he was was a sinner. Right? And so in the middle of that storm, he cried out, Help, Saint Anna! I will become a monk! Well, he survived the storm. Miraculously, it seemed to him. And so Martin Luther believed that his cry for help was a vow that he could never break. And so true to his word, 15 days later, he went... He left law school, sold his books, and then took himself and entered into St. Augustine's Monastery in Erfurt on July 17, 1505. He became a monk as a part of, of the Augustinian order. And because of that, he embraced his, his new life with complete dedication and zeal. He devoted himself to fasting, long hours of prayer, pilgrimages, frequent confessions, Martin Luther had a very deep dread of God's divine justice. And he was keenly aware of his sinful nature. And he was terrified of the idea of dying before he could make himself right before God. And so he threw himself wholeheartedly into the life of a monk. Not only would he confess his sins, but at times his confessionals would last six hours. Right? A monk in a monastery having six hours worth of confession. Luther would confess every little thought and every little deed. And it got so bad that the priest that he would confess to just refused to see him. And said, don't come back until you've actually done something wrong. Right? But Martin Luther had a deep conviction of his sin. Not just his acts, but also his thoughts as well. And Martin Luther did everything the church prescribed. Everything the church said to do to ease his conscience, he began to live, you know, a life of self-denial, of worldly comforts. He refused to eat anything that wasn't required to keep him alive. Right? He would sleep on a stone floor without blankets on cold nights in order to punish his body into submission. It was said that he even slept outside in a snowstorm and nearly froze to death in order to punish the sin out of himself. Martin Luther was so brutal on his own body in an attempt to overcome the guilt that he felt for his sin that his health deteriorated and he nearly died. You see, for Martin Luther, the guilt and, 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 and his sin and the knowledge of God being holy were torturers and tormentors that, that would follow him around all the time and never leave him. No matter where he went, no matter what he did, he could not escape the reality of the conviction of his sin. He was a sinner, he knew it, and he knew he couldn't fix it. 
Then in 1510, he went on a pilgrimage to Rome in order, hopefully, to find salvation. He purchased indulgences. He visited holy sites. He went to masses. He, he, he viewed the relics. He even climbed the Scala Sancta, or what was called the Holy Stairs. So it was the stairs that were supposedly the same stairs that Jesus ascended when he appeared before Pilate. Because according to fables, the steps were removed from Jerusalem and brought to Rome. And the priests claimed that, 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 that God forgave the sins of those who would climb those stairs on their knees. In fact, the very top of the stairs was permanently discolored with blood because the people who attempted this, right, by the time they got to the top step, their knees were bloody from making that climb. And so Martin Luther did this. Right? He, 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 he climbed the stairs on his knees, repeating the Lord's Prayer, kissing each step as he went, seeking peace with God. And when he reached the last step, he looked back and he thought, who knows whether this is even true? He'd felt no closer to God for all that he had done. But Martin Luther continued to press on. He continued to work to make God love him, to make God accept him. If the church said to do something, then he did it. But still his consciousness of sin would never leave him. In fact, it began to get worse. And not as, not as a monk, not as a priest shepherding a congregation and performing the mass... And not as a professor of theology, nothing he did, nothing he accomplished could remove this overwhelming guilt that he felt for his sin. He later confessed that he hated, he hated the righteousness of God and he was angry with God because, because he couldn't overcome the guilt that he felt that God had laid upon him. It seemed the harder that he worked, the more aware he was. Of his sin, and he became even more desperate in his situation. But year after year, Martin Luther continued to press on, trying desperately to escape the coming judgment and wrath of God. He worked himself into health crises. He continued to deny himself every kind of pleasure, all in an effort to make himself right with God. But it was to no avail. Martin Luther said, "If there was, if it was possible for a monk." To make himself right with God through monkery, I would have been the man. Martin Luther said this period of his life was one of the deepest of spiritual despair. He said, I lost touch with Christ as the Savior and Comforter and made him the jailer and the hangman of my poor soul. Martin Luther was desperate to be saved, not from the world, but from his sin. And he found no hope at all in anything that he could do himself. But as a professor of theology, Luther continued to read and study the scriptures. And he read and he studied and he meditated upon the book of Romans, which he found perplexing. And he began, finally, one night, see things differently as a different understanding began to emerge about salvation. As he contemplated, he wrestled with what Paul said in Romans 1.17, which states, the righteous shall live by faith. Luther finally came to realize that salvation was not something to be earned. It was a gift for the guilty, not a reward for the righteous. Man is not saved by his good works, but by trusting in the finished work of Christ alone. In the darkness, 
of his deep spiritual despair, in this quagmire of his brokenness, he found in the scriptures a light. Justification was not about what you could do for God. Salvation is about trusting in what God has already done through Christ for you by faith. Sola fide. And at this, Martin Luther finally was set free. He was set free from the guilt that plagued him his entire life. The guilt that pushed him to the brink of killing himself through his actions. Martin Luther said, I di- when I discovered that the righteous shall live by faith, I was born again to the Holy Spirit and the doors of paradise swung open and I walked through. You see, the reason why Martin Luther did what he did The reason why he was prompted to take that, that document and nail it to the door. Right? The, reason what, the reason that caused him to boldly stand up against the church right, and respond the way he did to the condemnation and threats and physical violence. Martin Luther stood for years in the darkness of his guilt, you know, torturing himself and making himself right before God. And then he inadvertently stumbles upon the light of the truth that mankind is justified, not by what he does, not by punishing himself, but he's justified by sola fide, by faith alone. And it changed his whole life. He found the truth. Years of searching, he found the truth. That's why he stood up. Now understand, the church doesn't argue the Catholic Church doesn't argue that people are saved by faith. Okay. They would say, yes, you need to have faith. But they say, you also need works. You also need confession. You also need baptism. You also need to attend Mass. You also need indulgences. You also, 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 also need all these other things. Not just faith alone. But Martin Luther, as he studied Romans, understood <clears throat> this is just not simply true. The righteous live by and are justified by faith alone and not any other works or keeping of the law or following a set of rules. In fact, turn with me to Romans 3. Romans 3 is the part of the Bible where Paul gets right into the gospel. And he makes it clear that everyone is under sin. He's already spent the first, you know, uh, first and second and most of the third chapter proving his point, you know, that, that... that everybody is under sin and under the wrath of God, right? It's the bad news. The gospel always begins with the bad news. And the bad news is everyone's a sinner. Everyone is a sinner and no one is going to be able to save themselves. And Paul says, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. So that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Paul, in his letter to the Romans, helps us to understand that the real purpose of the law, what what the real purpose is, the purpose of what the rules are. The law was not given so that you can go out and obey the rules and save yourself. The law was given to help you to see just how sinful you really are. The law was given to help you see God's divine nature and his righteousness. The law was given to help you see God's holiness and then look in the mirror by comparison to see how unholy you are in light of God's holiness. 
And that's what Martin Luther saw in the law. He saw a holy and righteous and just God, and he saw in himself the exact opposite of that. Regardless of all the things that he did, regardless of all the good works he did, he still saw the sin in him that was covering him up. And what he discovered is that no matter what he did, no matter how hard he worked, no matter how much he punished himself, he couldn't fix it. He couldn't clean himself up by any of his own attempts to keep the law. Which is exactly what Paul says. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. No one is going to do enough good stuff to justify himself before God. No one is going to keep enough rules to make God accept them. No one. And Paul says that the purpose of the law is to expose that, to bring that truth to light. The law exposes how broken and wretched we really are. The, the, the law exposes how we can't make ourselves right. In fact, Paul says that the law is there so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. Paul says the law makes everyone shut up and be quiet before God. Because when you stand and face God, you will have no words to offer in your defense. Because the law will convict you and the overwhelming evidence against you will leave you with nothing to say. When you stand before God and you're reminded of every little thing that you've ever done wrong in your life, what possible excuse are you going to have to offer? None. The law and the conviction that you will face will render you speechless. Your mouth will be shut. And Paul says it's that way for the sinner and the entire world. Because he says the whole world will be held accountable. The entire world will be held accountable. The whole world is exposed by the law. The whole world will stand silently before God as the charges are read against them. The whole world will be completely covered in sin. The whole world. And because of the law, the whole world will know without question that they are guilty and there isn't anything they can do to make themselves right before God. This is a universal problem. And it can't be solved by any of us. Not any of us. So there's nothing at all. Justification has nothing at all to do with your ability to save yourself. It has nothing to do with how hard you work. It has nothing to do with how compassionate you are. It has nothing to do with how much you loathe yourself and you try to punish yourself. You can do nothing to save yourself. And then Paul turns the corner and says, But now, the righteousness of God. Okay. Not some righteous standard that's arbitrary. Not man's self-righteousness. But the very righteousness of God himself. That righteousness has been manifested. It means it has been made known. It has been revealed to the world. The righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. God's righteousness has always been demonstrated by the law. God's righteousness is always apparent in the law. But now he's saying there's a new revelation of that righteousness. A new facet of it that's offered to mankind. That is apart from following the law. It's offered Apart from the law, righteousness that comes through Christ, not through the law. As he says, though, although the law and prophets 
or the Old Testament bear witness to it. That this new revelation has always been in the scriptures. It bears witness to it. Paul says, the righteousness of God has been manifest apart from the law. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. And there it is. The righteousness of God is available not through obedience to the law. Not by fasting. Not by buying indulgences. Not by rescuing kittens. Not by feeding homeless people. Not by climbing a set of stairs on your bloodied knees. It's a righteousness of God himself that's available through faith. Because as Paul said in Romans 1, the righteous shall live by faith. And this righteousness of God is for who? Well, he says, all who believe. All who believe. No matter who you are, no matter where you've been, no matter what you've done, all who believe. Everyone who comes to faith in Christ. Not those who attend a certain number of church services or masses. Not those who, who serve penance. Not those who take a vow of poverty. Not those who torture their bodies. But all who believe. All who put their faith in Christ, the righteousness of God is available to them. And notice what he says here. He says, for there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Every one of us, all have sinned and fallen short. All have been pronounced guilty. All of us, even the very best of us. Even those who seem to be really, really good people. I recently was talking to someone about a, a person who had died. And I said, you know, sincerely, I, I really wish I had done more to spend more time with this person to share the hope of Christ with him. Because I really don't know where they stood. I really just, I don't know. And I felt a conviction. And I, and I, and I said that out loud. I said, I told him, I really just wish I'd have done more, you know, to share the love of Christ with him. And my, my friend began to kind of rebuke me, right, and tell me. What a good person this other person was. And they began to tell me all the things that they had done. And list off all the th- good things that they were doing. And, and they talked about how they helped other people. And how so many people loved them. And, and I, I had to remind them. I said, wait a minute. Understand. I'm not doubting that they were a good person. But remember, good people don't go to heaven. Right? Understand that. Good people don't go to heaven. Saved people go to heaven. Right? Saved people do. Because the truth is, it doesn't matter how good you are. It doesn't matter how compassionate you are. Right? It doesn't matter if everybody loves you. At heart, we are all still fallen, broken sinners. As the Bible says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Even the very best among us, the most compassionate among us. And so Paul says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And, and I want you to look at this, and are justified or Declared righteous, justified by his grace as a gift. If you remember last week when we talked about sola gratia, Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, he said, For by grace you have been saved. And it's through what? Faith. And then if that wasn't clear enough, he says, And it's not your own doing. It's not something you did. It's not something that you earned. It's not something you carried out, right? 
It's not your own doing. It is a gift. The gift, a free gift of God, not the result of works, not the result of your rituals or rites or rules. You're saved by grace through faith. And so Paul says, there's no distinction. We are all the same, he says. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift. And this gift is made available This gift is available to us through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. It is made possible by the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Jesus is the one that makes it possible. He is the one that set you free. Jesus is the one who ransomed himself for you. And it is Jesus. It is Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. is what Paul says. Now... It's a weird word, propitiation. But we have to understand what this word is. Propitiation is an offering or an action done by someone in order to appease a God. That's what a propitiation is. It's something you do to appease a God. It's a sin offering or an act of devotion in an effort to appease a God, particularly an angry or wrathful God. It's something you do to assuage God's anger in essence. And what you have to understand, Martin Luther spent years and years and years and years trying to do this. Trying to do acts of propitiation on his own. He tried to appease God by his own actions. That's why he tried to keep the law. That's why he tried to torture his body. That's why he spent so much time in confession. He was trying to appease God's wrath on his own. He was trying to make propitiation. And he came to understand that he couldn't do it. He couldn't appease God's wrath on his own effort. But look what Paul says here. It says, God put Christ Jesus forward as a propitiation. God put his own son forward as the offering to appease his holy wrath. And this is the part that you cannot miss. God did it. You couldn't do it. God did it. You couldn't appease God's wrath. So God did it himself. God sent his son to the earth to be an offering to satisfy his own wrath. Think about this. God loved you so much that he took it upon himself to put forward a costly sacrifice to appease the wrath that he has that, rely, that rightly is, should be directed at you. You can't save yourself. So God did it for you. And he didn't do it by wishing it away. He did it by putting his own beloved son forward as a ransom, as a sacrifice. Hear the words. He killed his own son as a propitiation for your sins. So he could assuages wrath toward you so you could be welcomed as a child of God. Now, I could spend all day on that text alone. But suffice it to say that God's gift to you is a gift of grace that has been made available to you by sending His Son to the earth to become a sacrifice that satisfies His wrath And this gift is yours and is available to you 
and is to be received by, as Paul says, faith. That's how you get it. That's how you receive it. That's how, how this gift becomes yours and your own. That's how you have the assurance of it. That's how you're made right with God. You receive it by faith. You don't earn it. You don't work for it. You receive it like a gift by faith. You believe in God and you believe what God has done for you. And in Christ, you receive Christ as your Lord and Savior and trust in him. You receive that gift by faith. You're justified in the eyes of God by not what you can do to make yourself righteous. You're justified by faith alone. And then Paul says that God did it this way because this was to show God's righteousness because in divine forbearance, he passed over former sins, which means he didn't immediately bring final judgments and condemnation on the world when sin entered the world. When sent into the world, this destructive, hateful force, right? God didn't just say, okay, we're just going to hit the reset button and start over. We're just going to get rid of all creation. He didn't do that. In his divine forbearance, he postponed that judgment in order to show his righteousness at the present time. So that he, God, might be just And the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And you really have to kind of like wrestle with this last part here. Because it's two sides. God is just, but he's also the justifier of those who trust in him. You see, God is righteous. And what that means is he has to be just. And that ultimately means that he cannot simply just let sin go. That's what it means to be just. Sin must be punished. It must be dealt with. We all know it, right? I mean, if somebody wrongs us, we want justice to be done. Somebody steals our stuff, somebody's got to pay for it, right? If somebody harms us or our family members, we want justice to be done. I mean, if you go to court, you're not going to be okay when the judge simply excuses someone's behavior when they've cold-bloodedly killed somebody you care about. You're going to demand justice to be done, right? And you'll expect it to be done. It's the same on earth, and you will expect it in heaven. I think we all have an expectation that there's certain people who are going to be judged when they get to heaven. I think we all expect that, 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 that Hitler is already in torment, in hell, right? For all of the death and misery that he created. We all have that sense of justice, Right? Because we all know that justice must be done because God himself is just. It's just part of his nature, which means you have a problem. And the problem is that you're guilty. You've broken the law. You have sinned and rebelled against God, which means God is bound in his nature to have to deal with your sin. Him being just is bad news for you. Because you rightly deserve the full fury of God's wrath. You rightly deserve God's divine judgment and punishment for your sins. I mean, I remember when I was a kid and I would do something wrong and my dad would give me just enough time to think about it and know that I was going to get a whooping. I'm just telling you the fear and the dread I felt there. All right. That kind of condemnation rests upon all those 
who have sinned against God. We deserve to be sent to hell. But God in his divine forbearance for you doesn't immediately give you what you deserve, but instead put for his own son as a sacrifice, as a propitiation for your sin. You see, God does deal with your sin. But instead of giving you what you deserve, he sent his son to die in your place. Jesus took your sins with him to the cross. You were in your sins with no way of escape, with no way out. But God made a way for you to be saved. And that is through faith alone in what Christ has done. That's the only thing that you can do to accept this gift. It's the only thing that you can do to receive it is through faith. And by doing it this way, God is both just because he deals with sin. But at the same time, he's the justifier of the one who makes a confession of faith. He's the justifier. He's the one who makes right those who have faith in Christ. And that's the truth that Martin Luther rediscovered. God is both the one who holds the world accountable and the justifier of those who put their faith in Christ. God, by his own righteousness and his own sovereign action, he's the one that opens the door of heavens, of the heavens, so that we can walk through. This is Martin Luther said. The doors of heaven have been opened to all of those who put their trust in Christ. We can walk through that threshold by sola fide, faith alone. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, I thank you with all my heart for that promise. I thank you that it's that simple. And I thank you, Lord God, that I don't have to walk the tightrope of having to be good enough for you. Because I never will be. I thank you that we can sing songs like Blessed Assurance. Because that's what I have. Because I can tell you, Lord, I know. I I, I can say, Lord, I love you. I declare it with all my heart. I'll read your word. I'll pray. But I know it's going to happen. At some point, I'm going to fall face down in the dirt. I'm going to make a mess out of something. It's going to happen. Because I know who I am. And I just praise you, Lord God, that I don't have to worry about that happening next, wondering if I'm going to die in my sin and lose my salvation. I'm not saved by any of that, but by your grace through faith. I trust in what you've done for me. I trust that Jesus died for my sins. I trust that he died and rose again three days later and that you resurrected him as proof that he is what he claimed to be. I hold that promise with all my heart, mind, soul, and strength, Lord God. And I'm grateful to you that I can walk in that assurance that I don't have to perform. And that when I do obey you, Lord, it's because I love you and not because I'm terrified of you. I thank you that I can obey you because I care about you and your creation and not because I'm trying to make myself right before you. I thank you that I don't live this life of fickle, not knowing day after day. Am I good? Am I not good? Am I good? Am I not good? I'm saved by your, by, by your grace through faith. And I pray that all of us would embrace that today. That we can walk in that freedom. Freedom to obey you. Freedom to follow you. Freedom to know 
that we're your children, and as your children, you're going to certainly discipline us, but you will, you will always love us and, and, and see us all the way home. We thank you for that. And I pray, Father, you'd raise up a people in this church who are passionate about that, who would go out and declare that we are saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. And that your name would be glorified and people would be saved in our community. I pray that you would meet everybody here where they need to be met. And I pray, Father God, that you would bless those who couldn't make it today. And I pray that you're glorified in all of our lives. We love you. We praise you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening. You've been listening to the teaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. And please consider partnering with us financially as we share the hope and the healing of Jesus Christ with our community and with the world.